Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. All right, well, good morning and welcome to Church of the Redeemer. My name is Jason Myers, and I'm uh, happy to be with you on this day and to share uh, a little bit of God's Word in the book of Acts with us uh, today. So uh, as we begin, um, I want to start with a question. When was the last time that you remember feeling out of place? When was the last time that you walked into a space and immediately felt perhaps like you didn't belong? Maybe it's been this week, maybe it's been in the last year, maybe it's been a long time ago. Uh, When I think about that, I think one of the classic examples of feeling out of place that we can perhaps all relate to is the lunchroom, the high school lunchroom. You walk in and you scan the room, your eyes are looking left and right, darting, you're searching and searching for what? You're looking for your group, right? You are looking for a group that says, come on over here. Now, one of two things can happen. First, if you see your group, there could be a sign of relief. (sighs) Found them. This isn't gonna be another awkward lunch, if your experience was like my experience. Um, Or if you can't find them, um, a little sense of panic, which I'm a little bit more accustomed to. Why is that? Well, there's a sense of security, a sense of familiarity, a sense of comfort, Um, when you find that sense of acceptance, right? The opposite is true too. If we can't find that, there's a sense of uneasiness, of feeling out of place, of disconnected, and and sometimes fear, right? Feeling like we belong or are part of a group is probably one of the most basic human desires that we have. doesn't matter what age we are. uh, We all have this intense longing for belonging and connection. And we're made for that connection with other people. It's actually a a good thing at its core, but like all good things, our desire for connection and for belonging can also be distorted. Take that lunchroom again, right? There's that searching for a group, but it can also be accompanied by people staring at you, laughter, mocking, someone sliding over and saying, you can't sit here. You see, differences between groups can often drive some pretty toxic behavior too. Because once we've defined who's the inside, well, now we're going to define who's outside and make sure those outside people stay outside, right? And it's not just the lunchroom either. The lunchroom is just a story of the world writ large, that it is a story of a world driven by exclusion that often turns to fear, often to hatred, and then sadly, more times than not, often to violence against particular groups. And this story is all too common, and it was common in our story as we're going to see today in Acts as well. For the last several weeks, we've been in this book of Acts and seeing how the mission of God is propelling a people outward, first in Jerusalem, then to Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus had told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in places far from their homes. That meant moving into new places where there were different people, different locations, different cultures, and the disciples were going to feel out of place pretty often. And oftentimes, they would actually be driven out, pushed out. And that's actually where we meet the story 
today when we meet our disciples in Acts chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you uh, either on your device or in a print Bible to open up to Acts chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 19. And it's the story of being driven out, of being excluded, that really drives the story today. Uh, Luke says in verse 19, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Uh, when we meet these disciples in this story, they've not been included, they've been excluded, and they've been pushed out, and they are running for their lives. A sweep of persecution had sprung up in Jerusalem, and one of their friends had been murdered. There's a man named Stephen, and he had been killed for preaching boldly about Jesus. And his story is in Acts chapter 7, just a few chapters earlier from where we're at today. Uh, and in the aftermath of his murder, the disciples are on the run, and some of them meet, reach this city called Antioch, which is where our story, as you heard in our reading, takes place today. Uh, I have a map up on the screen. Uh, sometimes geography is in our strong suit. And so you can see there on the right-hand side of the map, the city of Antioch. It's modern-day Syria. Same city, same place where this story takes place. What you might not know, though, is that back in the first century, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. That is behind Rome and Alexandria. You then have this city, Antioch. It was around 500,000 people in the first century. Just to put it in perspective, that's a, that's a big city. That's bigger than Greensboro, right? This is a massive city. It was a major center for Jewish people in the ancient world. And after today's story, it becomes a leading center for the early Jesus movement, for those first followers. And the city was full of a lot of people and perhaps just as many problems. You see, when the city was originally built, uh, there was built a wall running down the middle of the city to keep different ethnic groups segregated in the different sections of the city. That's the origins of this town. It was a radically divided city, like physically, a physical wall. And it's in this place, as we're going to see in Acts today, that a new work of God will begin to unfold. And there are two really small but important details I want us to see as we begin today in the passage. Take a look at verse 19 again. The persecuted disciples of Jesus arrive in Antioch, and immediately they begin spreading the message about Jesus. But did you notice to who they spread it to? Luke is pretty specific. He says, only Jews. That's it. In the first stage, the message only goes to one group. But it doesn't stay that way for long, because in verse 20, Luke says, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Uh, what we might miss, or maybe perhaps never heard, is that for the first decade or so of this Jesus story, the Jesus movement, it was almost entirely Jewish. Jesus was Jewish, his disciples were Jewish, the scriptures are written almost entirely uh, by Jewish people, and God's long and winding story has had a particular focus on a particular people known as the Israelites. And Jesus is the fulfillment and turning point in that story that begins to broaden to include non-Jewish people uh, as well, who are known as Gentiles in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard this word Gentile thrown out and always gone, okay, yeah, I think we're supposed to know what that means, but maybe, maybe I don't. 
Uh, that's okay. Uh, being a Gentile is simply a Jewish way of referring to anyone who's non-Jewish. So the world is divided up into two types of people. You have Jewish people and everyone who is not Jewish people, right? And so Gentile is a term that actually refers to an ethnic identity, right? Jews and Gentiles are two different ethnic groups as much as they're religious and political and social groups, right? Now, Gentiles refers to a host of different ethnic groups. In fact, most Gentiles would probably not have thought of themselves as a Gentile. That would have been a, a weird term for them. They would have said, no, I'm, I'm an Egyptian. I'm a, I'm a Phoenician. I'm a Greek. I'm a Syrian. It was just this kind of catch-all term. And so what we find in Antioch is the first official mission to Gentiles in the book of Acts, which is probably why Luke includes it, because Luke, by the way, is also a Gentile, also non-Jewish. And so this story matters to him. And it's the moment in this story, it's the moment where the movement becomes multi-ethnic. This is the first official step into that here in this story. And friends, I can't help but bear out this point that this story is our story. I'm going to assume for most of us, people sitting in this room are non-Jewish people. And this is the origin story of our inclusion into the story that we read and hear about every week. We can trace our spiritual heritage back to Acts 11. And people like Barnabas and some unnamed people who made room for us in the movement. And we can so often forget that our identity as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people, is one of outsiders. It's that lunchroom writ large where there's not a seat at the table, right? And the problem is that when we read the story, we probably see ourselves more like Barnabas or Paul in the story, when actually we're more like the Greeks of Antioch. We have more in common with the Greeks of Antioch or even the Ethiopian eunuch than we do with Barnabas and Paul to some degree, at least at this point in the story. And so what we're reminded of is that the gospel has come to us in a radical way and invited us into a story that is not our own, that was not of our own making, that was not there for us. And the problem is that we've been part of the story for so long that we think we're at the center of it. And what Acts 11 reminds us is that we have always been ones who have been surprisingly invited into this grand story of God, graciously invited. And so Luke records here that a great number of Gentiles, because of the work of these unnamed people and people like Barnabas, that the Gentiles respond to the good news about Jesus and are added to the community in Antioch. And this news is so unexpected and important. You find out in the story that in Jerusalem, they send a leader to check out what's going on in Antioch. There's questions, okay, something's happening up in Antioch. We got to figure out what's going on. So they send a guy named Barnabas, one of the more familiar names in our New Testament. And so Barnabas arrives in Antioch, and in verse 23, Luke says that he saw the grace of God. Anything strike you as interesting about how Luke says that? He saw the grace of God. He saw grace. I find that so interesting. We often talk about the grace of God. We discuss it, we mention it. But have you ever seen it? What would it look like to see the grace of God at work? What did Barnabas see? Luke says he saw the grace of God. Here in this passage, I think it seems that it is the presence of Jewish Christians 
and Gentile Christians in the same room together, worshiping. It's the unification of these different ethnic groups together that is an evidence of God's grace at work within the community. You see, we use this word grace all the time in our Christian circles. And this word grace is actually the same word for gift. And so when Barnabas comes to Antioch and he sees a bunch of people who've received the greatest gift from God, his son, he sees their inclusion and their unity within the community as a sign of God's grace at work among them. Grace takes on these tangible, seeable effects. It's not simply just an accounting or wiping away of misdeeds. It's not just a private experience. Grace is communal. Grace is an invitation to be part of God's family. And I think this is what Barnabas sees in Antioch. And the question that remains for us is that would others see the same grace of God at work in our community? When people see Redeemer, do they see grace? Maybe it's not enough to talk about the grace of God, but what we need is a radical embodiment of God's grace in a unified community, a community that looks radically different from one another. So Barnabas sees them and he rejoices because he sees that God is at work in the community reconciling groups that society had placed apart. Remember, in that city of Antioch, we had that wall running down the middle of town, dividing the group into two ethnic, different ethnic categories. I think Barnabas in that moment in Acts 11 sees, the breaking sees that breaking down in this community. Perhaps he reflected on scripture and he thought about Genesis 15 and the promise that God made to Abraham, that through Abraham and his family, all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. And as Barnabas looks out over the room, maybe he says to himself, I'm seeing the blessing. I'm seeing the blessing of God. I'm seeing the grace of God at work. God is working and Barnabas is overjoyed at the work of God. And Luke records that Barnabas had an incredible role within this community because, as Luke notes, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. What is fascinating about this is how Luke connects being full of the Spirit, ethnic unity, and church growth. These three things come together throughout this second half of the book of Acts, and even more Gentiles are added to the community at Antioch, and the church continues to grow. But I wonder if Barnabas' response was unique. Did everybody respond that way? Would we respond the same way? You see, Luke notes that Barnabas rejoiced at the radical increase of non-Jewish people is important. It highlights, I think, that not everyone was as happy as Barnabas. In fact, if you fast forward a couple chapters to Acts 15, you're going to find out that there's some complaints about what just happened in Antioch. The first initial report is that Barnabas is, is excited, but by the time he gets back to Jerusalem, there are some people who have some thoughts for him, and not all of those thoughts are pleasant. Um, and so he's going to get an immense pushback when he gets there. But Barnabas rejoices. He rejoices over the growth of a community of people who don't look like him. You see, this is a deeply human story too. It seems as, as humans, we deeply struggle with difference. For many of the increasing groups that don't look like the majority can be one of fear and anxiety. 
And what strikes me about Luke's story is that how the work of the Spirit rejoices over the inclusion of people who are ethnically different from Barnabas and from the first leaders. The Spirit at work does this because the mission is more important and more powerful than worldly divisions. It's more important than comfort. It's more important than normality. It's more important than our own agendas. It's the Spirit at work to, to move the mission of God to where God has it. And this isn't just an ancient story that happened once and never happened again. History, although we would want to have more stories like this, does have a few. For example, in 1906, at the height of the Jim Crow laws, there was an outpouring of the Spirit in a place in Southern California. Oh, sorry, in California, in what became known as the Azusa Street Revival. One of the main leaders was a person named uh, Reverend William Seymour. His picture's on the screen. And when he was asked how he knew that this was a work of the Spirit, he actually didn't point out the speaking in tongues or the miraculous gifts of healing. He didn't um, point necessarily to the numbers. What he pointed out, and what strikes me, is that he knew that the Holy Spirit was at work because the color line had been washed away. Because in 1906, deep in the midst of segregation, he saw black and white, male and female, worshiping together outdoor in a public space. This was an Acts 11 type moment. This is something that Barnabas saw and rejoiced. Can it happen again? When is it going to happen again? And the question is, would we rejoice? Would we find ourselves excited at the movement of God? I don't want us to be naive. I don't think that what happens in Antioch was an easy thing. I don't think we look at the past and go, oh, it must have just been a simpler time, and I guess it was just easy for them to do that. I don't think so. I think it was a really difficult thing. And what I mean by that is the combination of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians didn't happen automatically, and it didn't happen overnight. They each came from different cultures with different sets of priorities and different problems. And I think it took work, really, really hard work, to form this diverse ethnic community. And according to Luke, the work at Antioch needed two things. It needed more help, and it needed teaching. And so Barnabas had been working with some other teachers, but we find out around verse 25 and 26 that he reaches out to a guy named Paul for help, who's in Tarsus, about 100 miles away. He asked Saul, Paul, to come and help him with the church at Antioch, and this is Paul's first assignment as a disciple of Jesus. And you may have heard of Paul. He's kind of famous uh, in the New Testament. This is before all of that. This is before the letters. This is before the missionary journeys. This is before the riots in Ephesus. This is, this is beginnings. And Paul's first work is to partner with Barnabas and working together with this, this diverse community. He begins his ministry with Jesus by working alongside Barnabas. And Luke says in verse 26 that they met with the church and they taught great numbers of people. But what did they teach? I think our first thought might be that they're talking to them about Jesus. But Luke has already told us twice in verses 20 and 24, you can go look it up, that they have believed the gospel. They're followers of Jesus. They've had the conversation about who Jesus is, why they should believe in him, how he's the Messiah, what God is up to in this world. They are already believers. So what would take, as Luke says, a whole year of teaching? My hunch is that as Barnabas and Paul are working with them, 
My hunch is that they're, is that they are teaching them how to live together as a community. As I mentioned earlier, the concerns and problems that both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians faced in that ancient world were different. They weren't the same. To be a Gentile in the ancient world came with a unique set of challenges, a unique set of problems, as did being a Jewish Christian. Uh, in a few years, Paul's going to write to this region again in a letter called Galatians, and Antioch makes an appearance in that letter too, in chapter 2. And near the end of that letter, Paul instructs the Galatians, the same community, to bear one another's burdens. Now, to this diverse community, Paul's instructions were revolutionary. To bear a burden doesn't mean or doesn't describe just listening to prayer requests, hearing about uh, a struggle. The term burden here is pretty strong and indicates what we might call uh, oppressive burdens, burdens that weigh people down. And the idea of bearing with someone else means helping to alleviate and lessen that burden. To bear it means not just say, yeah, we all have problems, um, but say, okay, this is a problem. I'm your brother or sister. How can I help? How can I make that load a little bit lighter? And so Paul instructs this community to bear one another's burdens. I think this is, at least admits that they're sitting together and they're listening to one another discuss what those burdens are, what they've gone through, and how to help them alleviate those by making it a little bit lighter. I think this would make a world-shattering difference in the ancient world as well as in our own. And I imagine the sharing of some of those burdens might have been a little awkward. I don't think it was a, yeah, we don't have that problem. I've never participated. I think it could have been a little tense as they discussed the issues that they've struggled with. The story in the book of Acts, though, is a revolutionary one in that as the mission expands, as the story moves in the book of Acts, so does the difficulty of holding that movement together because it gets more diverse the farther it gets from Jerusalem. But realize that this is what God has started. It would have been easier to stay in Jerusalem, far easier. And what I mean by this is that as the movement keeps adding diverse people groups, the nature of those burdens increase, and therein lies the challenge. How do we hold unity in this diverse community? How do we do this today? Are we as Christians bearing one another's burdens? Are we listening? Are we attuned to the burdens that people experience? There's a story, there's a narrative I hear uh, a little too often, is that when we hear about people's burdens, we tend to be dismissive. We tend to wipe it away and say, well, that's not something. Trying to explain away why someone really shouldn't call their experience an oppressive burden. The story can all be all too common. What if, like Barnabas, by the power of the Spirit, we might be humble and admit that our experience isn't everyone's experience? What if the witness of those people who are suffering around us might just be the burden we are called to bear with them? And this doesn't happen naturally. I mean that literally. What we see throughout the book of Acts is that it is a work of the Spirit to empower the diverse community to be the community that God has called it to be, a community of mutual support, encouragement, and burden bearing. And what's inspiring about this is that it's not of our own creative genius or wisdom. This is something that Jesus has already created and has called us into. 
This is something that God is up to already in our world and what will one day be as we see Revelation 21 and 22. We are called into it already. The question is, will we be obedient to God's vision for his community? And God's vision might be different than ours. In fact, I thank God that it is. We see as this newly formed group starts to gather together, take a look at verse 26. Jews and Gentiles start worshiping together as a unified community, uh, and it's more than a little confusing to the outside world. So confusing, in fact, that outsiders don't really know what to call this group. So in verse 26, they give them a nickname. They can't look at Antioch and say, oh, that's a, that, that's a Jewish group over there doing their religious thing, or, oh, that's just a bunch of Gentile immigrants who have come to the town and we don't know what they're up to either. They don't have a way to label the group. It doesn't fit. And so they come up with a new name, and it's a name that we are all too familiar with. It's the term Christian. Now, after 2,000 years, we've become so accustomed to our name that we've forgotten its origins. Put plainly, the multi-ethnic identity is baked into our name as Christians. To call yourself a Christian is, of course, to identify with Christ as his follower, but also inherently to recognize the multi-ethnic dimension of our community. At the heart of being a Christian is the multi-ethnic reality of the people of God. It's baked into who we are. It's in our very name, and it becomes our identity. To put this another way, there's no other way to identify as a Christian without subtly confessing this identity, that we are part of a global, worldwide, multi-ethnic movement made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is just as confusing in the ancient world as it is in our world today. Picture this. Let's say we were all able to transport back to Antioch, and someone is walking through ancient Antioch, and they stumble into a house church. When they look inside the room, they see Jews and Gentiles, male and females, slaves and free people, worshiping together, bearing one another's burdens. And as they look into that room, there is not a natural explanation for why all those people are in the same room together. It can't be explained. In fact, the only explanation is supernatural, as in it's a work of the Spirit of God to bring people together who wouldn't otherwise be in the same room together. And the early Christians, they posed this confusing reality to the ancient world. And the diversity of their communities actually presented one of the most profound evangelistic opportunities. Because their community raised the question, what are you all doing in the same room? What has brought you together? And the early Christians replied, let me tell you a story. And they went on to tell them a story of, a, of Jesus who rescued them and brought all these disparate groups together as a new family. What a witness. What an opportunity. And oh, that we might recover that witness today so that we might be that witness of God's new creation. You see, this idea of diversity in communities is not a new idea that people are slowly waking up to. It's a deeply Christian idea. It's God's idea. It's not ours. It's not the, the typical talking points of various political parties. It's not the current fad. It's not uh, um, the current cliche. This is at the heartbeat of God's mission 
of his salvation of the world. It's his idea. It's not ours. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. And so what are we to do with this story today? How are we to become the type of Christians envisioned here? As we conclude, let me offer a few quick suggestions. I think first is to cry out for the Spirit. Our first action is to cry out for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God, to break down the barriers of prejudice towards one another. If the Spirit doesn't move, there is no hope. If Acts teaches us anything, it's the Spirit that moves the people of God to become the community that he desires them to be. We literally don't have the power to break down the walls that we have constructed and that the enemy defends. Think about it. If God's desire is to form a multi-ethnic family that will worship him in a new heavens and new earth, the enemy does not want that. That is set against God's purposes. Throughout Acts, we see it's the spirit that begins to form this new community. And we see this in Acts 11 and beyond. And the same is true for us today. We won't see that movement unless the spirit moves. Second, I think listening is key. We can become better listeners to our brothers and sisters who experience significant burdens. How well do we listen? We can be so quick to dismiss the real concerns of others. One small eye-opening moment for me was in college. I just met my roommate who had become one of my lifelong friends. Uh, his name is Kyle and he's black. I remember so much of our story together, but I can still remember, I can't give you the date, but I can still remember the evening of sitting on a bunk bed late into the evening and hearing Kyle share in deep and honest ways what his life was like growing up in Maryland and what he experienced as a, as a, as a black male living in the 90s and early 2000s and coming to college and what he still experienced as an undergraduate student. I had a choice. I could listen and learn or I could rationalize, or I could dismiss. And by the grace of God and by a work of the Spirit, I'm so glad I listened to the witness about his experience. And what's become interesting over the last 15 years of my life is hearing Kyle's story repeated verbatim by different friends in different places who don't look like me. And the opportunity is always there to be willing to listen and to learn and to share a burden with a friend. Third, I don't, think it, I don't think it stops at listening. I think it takes learning and growth. We see this in Acts 11. Paul and Barnabas had to teach for a year to get this community to figure out how to live a common life together. And you may say I'm biased since I'm a professor, but it strikes me that teaching is at the heart of the Christian movement in Antioch. And this work to become this community doesn't come without a dedication to teaching and training. And the Spirit, I think all these things work together, by the way. The Spirit uses our listening and our learning in order to grow us. The Spirit can work mightily through teaching and allow our awareness to be broadened. What would it look like to spend the next year of our lives learning, committing to listening and to learning from one another? If it's something you're interested in, I'd love to recommend some resources that have been helpful to me. But learning is certainly the first step to fulfilling out this Antiochian vision and Paul's command to bear one another's burdens. But it's not enough to read a book or to listen to a podcast. That's some of the easy work. 
the early church was empowered by the Spirit, taking time to listen to one another, taking time to devote themselves to teaching, and were also act actively involved in working to help one another. Some of the first Christian movements were aimed at alleviating oppressive burdens in the ancient world. How can we begin, by the power of the Spirit, to lead a new way of life, to begin to work to alleviate some of the oppressive burdens that our brothers and sisters share? I think, in conclusion, our work can be such a powerful witness to the new reality of the community that God is already forming in our midst. The diverse community in Acts 11 was a powerful testimony then to a world riddled with division and is a powerful sign today with a world racked with some of the same divisions by other names. Our diverse and unified community is a sign to the world that our king is ruling and that he is gathering his family from all the corners of the earth and forming one new humanity through Jesus. What a radical idea. Might we become and embody the community that causes the world to say, what has brought you together? And might we be ready with a powerful story to share about the goodness of Jesus and his work in this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.